Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. Today I'm talking with mycologist, researcher, and author Trad Cotter about mushrooms and their many talents. We'll talk about fungi as food, powerful medicine, pollution cleaners, soil builders, a disaster victim's best friend, and as creatures you should just get to know. We'll also talk about how Santa and his flying reindeer couldn't do their thing without mushrooms. Trad Cotter owns Mushroom Mountain in South Carolina, where he grows mushrooms for food and does really cool mycology research. And he's the author of a fantastic book, Organic Mushroom Farming and Mycoremediation, Simple to Advanced and Experimental Techniques for Indoor and Outdoor Cultivation which I own, and which, if you're interested in mushrooms from any angle, you want this book. It's user-friendly, it's comprehensive, and has great pictures, and Trad has a great sense of humor that really comes through. It's my go-to book for the mushrooms we grow here. I first met Trad at Sterling College here in Vermont, where he was teaching a class at Sterling School for the New American Farmstead, which is sponsored in part by Chelsea Green Publishing, the publisher of Trad's book. So, welcome, Trad. (laughs) Good morning. (laughs) So, I love the story about how you got started in mushrooms. And I would like you to tell that story. You were a singer in a rock and roll band. And then what happened? Well, I'm still in a rock and roll band in my mind. (laughs) And the only way I could get back on stage was to become, I guess, good at mushroom speaking. So (laughs) I guess I live my rock and roll career out through my talks now. And uh, I have a lot of fun. But I mean, back when I was about 19 and I was in a band and my parents were probably worried about me at this point. Um, And I um, was interested in biology and medical biology and was going to the College of Charleston. And I was, um, I think, kind of preparing myself to be potentially a doctor, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, or or something in the medical field. I wasn't sure. I was, I'm afraid of needles, so I didn't think I would get very far. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> something else um, to do to help people and my mom was like uh, oh well there's a uh, mushroom farm out on John's Island in South Carolina and you know they grow what I hear there's mushrooms that have some medicinal properties or they're good for you and I said huh that's interesting and I knew nothing about fungi um, so I started reading up and studying a little bit and uh, called and got permission to come out and the owner walked me around the farm. He, he showed me the, the autoclave, which is a big sterilizer. And, I mean, the plate, he was really busy, two people working there. And then he walked me into the colonization room. And then I started to see, like, these stages of development. And for those of you who have never been to a mushroom farm, it's crazy to know where your, where your mushrooms come from, how they grow. So I was just kind of in, you know, just in shock 
by the whole process. And then we walk into the fruiting room and it's like, like foggy and it looks like something like, like Halloween in there. And, <laughs> and I like that. And it was cool. It was like 65 cool and just damp. And it was like an, it was like a, you know, like a modern cave. And I, uh, I saw mushrooms fruiting off of blocks. I mean, all different stages. And it was just amazing to me that, that how that process worked. I was like, how could this be possible? Mm-hmm. I, I made some suggestions to the owner and like, you know, well, what about your records? You know, um, these formulas you're using and he wasn't keeping very good records. So, um, I ended up leaving. He gave me a pound of mushrooms, like, you know, what most shroom dealers would do. Do you know yeah. what kind, of, do you remember what kind he gave you? There were, there were puppies, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. give me like half a pound or something like that. And, and, uh, I sent me on my way and he said, thanks for coming by. And I got in my little Hyundai, you know, my dad bought me this Hyundai and, uh, it was like a four cylinder. It was a <laughs> road. This is very important. <laughs> dirt road, very, very dry day. And you know, white coral or whatever, white granite, whatever the gravel is. And so I'm pulling out and I'm in first going into second gear and there's dust all behind my car. I can't see anything behind me. I hear this really loud, like bam. And I thought I like blew a tire or something fell on my car because mm-hmm. there's all these live oaks everywhere. And um, I'm, I slow down and the owner uh, was at my window knocking on it. And so I stopped the car, rolled the window down now he had come after you on foot, right? Yeah, he, he raced after me on foot. And I was a good 40 yards away from their front door from where mm-hmm. he So he was he was tracking it. And he's, he, I rolled down the window, and I'm like, what's going on? He goes, and the first thing he said was, would, would you like a job? Do you want to work here? And I was just like in shock. And I, I tell the story, and I still am in shock because – the fact remains that back there, he didn't have my contact number. Um, cell phones were only for the elite. Mm-hmm. And um, had he missed my car, had had my car been a little bit nicer, Maria, like in the get get up, you know, on second gear, I think <laughs> he could have, this, my whole life could have came down to missing my, you know, for a few inches. Right. Um, if he wasn't fast, that fast, or my car was faster, you know, it was everyone, but it worked out. Yeah, I'm, I'm just very grateful for that Hyundai my dad gave me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting because a lot of times when I talk to people about how did you get into what you're doing, I mean, people who are really committed to stuff, it's often in weird ways like that. Or just a note, they'd see a note somewhere in a laundromat or um, somebody hands them something. It's almost like, okay, here you go. Here's your life. <laughs> well, I got a better story than that. Okay. You want to hear it? Sure. <laughs> That's a good one. So I, I get into mushrooms and I'm out at this herb festival. And this little old lady comes up to me. She's like with a cane. And she looks at the mushrooms, and she looks at me, looks at the mushrooms, and she goes, you know, my, um, my great-grandmother was a mushroom expert, uh, a, uh, the first female American mycologist. Mm-hmm. I was like, really? I was like, that's really interesting. And so she said, um, 
she goes, well, her house is on, in, on the Battery in Charleston, and I would love for you to come by and see the house. She has all these water colorings and microscopes, and I said, oh, that is so cool. And Maria, I was like bartending at the time, you know, mm-hmm. to make ends meet. And she handed me the piece of paper. She wrote down the address and she said goodbye. And then after she's walking off, I'm watching her kind of waddle off. I open up the piece of paper and it said like 109 Trad Street. Yep. And <laughs> I got goosebumps. I got goosebumps right now. Sp- spelled the same way with two Ds? Oh, yeah. Trad wow. is the historic Charleston name. Wow. So... I remember going down there, and I lost the address, so I walked the whole length of Trad Street, and there's multi-million dollar houses down there, yeah. very well kept, and then I'm, I'm looking, and I'm panicking because I'm late, and I see this little house, very um, humble, with a little mushroom statue hiding under a camellia, and I said, this can't be it. Oh, this has <laughs> got to be it, you know? Yeah. It's just too coincidental, so I'm like nervous to like enter the gate and trespass or anything and then as soon as i'm looking out this this uh lady comes out on the patio and says hey trad come on in and i quit my job that day wow i called in and i said this is just bizarre um i i love this too much and i just said i can't come into work today i just said something profound has happened and i think it was a I'm I'm not big on signs, you know. I'm not like uh, uh, astrological, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of a person. But this, to me, personally, was a message to me that says maybe I should look into this, you right. know. And from then on, it's been mushrooms and landscape design, and uh, but it always mushrooms have, has always been on the front of my brain. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I mean, you were you were obviously getting some signals there. <laughs> so since so many people only know mushrooms from like their pizza or something, um, w- one of the things I want to talk with you about is not only the food properties of mushrooms, but then there are so many different ways that mushrooms can solve problems. Uh, and so I'd like to go into some of those. And first I'd like to say that for any of you listeners out there, Trad says in his book, don't identify anything from the internet. You have to know what you're doing. Okay. So tell me about the, the mushrooms that you're working on at Mushroom Mountain. So out of the, out of the 200 species I have, I mean, obviously we're, um, we are a farm, so we're, we're growing and cultivating uh, mushrooms in our, our, our production room, uh, fruiting room, and that's to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've got shiitake and oyster. Mu- well, we have a lot about ten different shiitake strains. Mm-hmm. at different temperatures. They have different uh, qualities to them, and then uh, we have a lot of oyster strains: pink, blue, golden, white, elm, and they are all nutritionally and medically important as well. Mm-hmm. So, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, we've got uh, maitake, lion's mane, uh, enoki, black poplar. Um, boy, I, it just, there's, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. So we, I tend to grow seasonally, even though we grow indoors, I like to save energy. So we kind of rotate our crops in the fruiting room to produce seasonally using the different strains. 
And then the other bulk of the cultures I have, I, I pull them out for remediation or uh, medical experiments. And that's kind of what I'm doing now is mostly medical experiments. Okay. A little bit of remediation will, will happen later this summer. And we have some interns helping me. I just, it's, it's really been a limiting factor is the amount of help I can get. Mm -hmm. uh, and so far we've had some really good interns working for us. So they know what's going on. Right. And then they can lead the next team of interns that comes in. Mm -hmm. um, as far as the, the research we're doing, what I'm looking for is taking those mushrooms, which I consider edible medicine, and just like penicillin. So anyone listening, um, if, if you don't think mushrooms are medicine, then you know penicillin never did anything for us. <laughs> Part of the misunderstanding might be that when we're talking about mushrooms, we're not just talking about the fruiting body you know, the thing that looks like a toadstool or whatever, that we're also talking about the mycorrhizae, right? Yeah, that's called mycelium. And some, some mushrooms are mycorrhizal. Those, those bond with tree roots. And that's a whole different class of fungi. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I'm talking about. Is it's uh, it's mind-boggling to me now that I've been doing this for 24 years that there's one over one and a half million species of fungi mm -hmm. that that don't produce mushrooms. They're just um, hyphae or mycelium spreading around and uh, eating stuff all over the planet. And uh, we only, we've only found 10% of these little guys or girls and <laughs> <laughs> who knows, but um, I'm fascinated by it because if we take those, if we keep isolating those and putting them at least in the lab for now and just like a, like a, like a gym and putting them in front of some exercise units, which could be herbicides or producing medical compounds, we can figure out what they do. And I, I, treat, I treat these fungi like they're people. I don't know who they are when they come in and um, I, I make a buffet for them and <laughs> I see what they eat. I see what they don't eat. Um, I see what they can build. I see what they're not gifted at. Um, I see what they're talented at. And so then I put them to work, you know, for us. So you said, this is, is this along the lines of when you said in class that mushrooms can be trained to do certain things, to break down chemicals or to break down different kinds of toxins? Is, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and I think I described it as uh, fungi are not cats. <laughs> they they can, can be trained uh, more like dogs, you know, yeah. or, you know, they... Uh, but no, I, I actually treat it, uh, teach it like animals and, and humans. And to put it in a human perspective, okay, and I, I did this with your class, if you remember. I think I said that I would trap everybody in a room and not feed you for a week. Mm -hmm. And then at the beginning of the week, I would leave some really foul, nasty food, like a century egg, which is a rotting, like an embryonated, fermented duck egg. Oh, like a Chinese delicacy? Oh, yeah, delicacy, right? <laughs> and the whole pile of this stuff in the center of the room for, let's say, 20 people, you know. And I would, I would you know, microwave it if that made anybody feel better. Uh, so 
on day one, I said, who would eat that? Nobody raises their hand. I said, how about day three? Uh, two or three people raised their hand. And I said, how about day seven? And about everybody raises their hand. And what I'm getting at is I've seen, you know, personally, and I do this all the time, is that when fungi get hungry, they get opportunistic. And uh -huh. they don't want to die either. So being very animal-like and predatory and um, they almost have to eat it. They have to try to figure out a way to get past it <laughs> and just stay alive. And so mushrooms use uh, extracellular enzymes in that respect. To They shift their genetics a little bit. They express, they turn off some genes, turn on others. And then they instruct their assembly line, like a, like a factory. They, they signal to the factory, hey, listen, you know, this is not what we normally eat, but we got to eat it. So let's, uh, let's create some chemical keys that we can unlock this stuff and start using it to stay alive. And that's fascinating to me. Yeah. And it should be to everyone. It's, 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 uh, there should be a lot more focus of study going into how fungi do this. And I, I feel like I learned a lot from watching fungi, like they're teaching me this. Mm -hmm. you know, sit back and watch. Like what, the, what, do you learn, what do you learn from them that you can, is it stuff that you can apply to your own life? Oh, sure. There's, I think there's a, a moral lesson to be learned here. And what is that? I think that uh, there's a sense of selflessness. Mm -hmm. There's a, a balancing sense of greed and selflessness that um, when it's time to take, you need to take. And when it's time to give back, um, you give back. Mm -hmm. um, mushrooms, are, mushrooms are classified um, in most age groups as decomposers. And I don't think that's fair. Okay. <laughs> I think that's racist, Maria. Maybe they're composers. They are composers, but they do the disassembly first. You know, they do the initial disassembly. So they are disassemblers and then assemblers. So they kind of bring nature back full circle. You know, they occupy a beautiful niche in, in nature. Um, and, and not all mushrooms are beneficial to plants. But, you know, every fungus in some way is beneficial to the planet as a whole, you know. Right. And we're working with beneficial fungi to, you know, to humans to eat. I also have pathogens in the lab that are very interesting, that are poisonous to people, but they're sweating out some amazing antibiotics. So, yeah, to talk about the antibiotics, because you were talking about antibiotic resistance and how... I think a lot of people know that we're really running out of options. So, um, again, fungi being very good at solving puzzles and figuring things out and reacting to their environment, bacteria specifically are um, trading genes. They're very promiscuous is what they call it. <laughs> and they, <laughs> and they, they are learning to like dock to one another, like, like tether. They tether to each other, and even if it's a different species, for some reason, they're finding it beneficial to those bacterial communities to tether to each other, like, like just like in outer space, and, and transport antibiotic-resistant genes back and forth to each other, like trading. That's amazing. 
like a thumb drive, and they're just they're swimming around with a thumb drive that says, "Hey, do you want to go to the party? Yeah, the party's over there, and you can't get in. You know, here's the here's the backstage pass, mm-hmm. and um, they they can swim right in. And so this happens with regular antibiotic use in about two to two and a half years. Wow. And so that's dangerous because we also know that for the FDA, by the time a pharmaceutical company has identified a compound, it could take 12 or more years to approve an FDA-approved drug to beat that. Wow. So it should be on the front burner, and it it is right now with that uh, White House initiative and NIH grants and and everybody's pushing, but I, I feel... And I, I'll say this, I'll put my neck out there. But okay. <laughs> I'm not going to mention any names, but there are some big pharmaceutical companies that even if you look on your website, so I don't have to make this up or accuse anybody, their research, their R&D is committed not to bacterial resistant drugs. It's committed to um, things that they can sell on the pill a day market. And... There's no money in the cure for these diseases. See? When you say pill a day market, you mean like people who have some kind of condition that they have to. It's not just treating an acute condition, but treating a chronic. Sure. One. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, antidepressants. That's uh, you know sugar regulation and watching right. the commercials. Constipation. Yeah, constipation, which you know <laughs> comes along with the the opioids. I want to talk about the election. But <laughs> with it. You know what I read? I don't know if you saw this, but you know, in Rio for the Olympics, they have isolated that antibiotic resistant gene or series of genes in the water uh, where they're going to be having the aquatic events. So, isn't that a, a fine kettle of fish? Wow. Oh, my God. If I was an Olympic athlete, I don't know what I'd be doing down there. I'd be staying home, sitting on my hands. That's what I'd be doing. So the mushrooms can respond very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what we do is we make these little gladiator matches, and uh, we make these plates with specific media, and we'll put a mushroom on one side and a bacteria on the other, and then we'll see how they react to each other. So it's just like making a like a Roman gladiator match, and I and then they start to battle it out on the plate, and it only takes a day or two to figure out who who has the weapons. But I get ex- I genuinely get excited about watching these things, and um, when I'm away, I get anxiety because you miss the lab because I know that something's going on. You know, I want to be there to watch it. You know, uh, the bacterial stuff, the inhibitions can happen in 24 hours. Ah. So I have to time it. I would never do an intentional, um, like an inhibition study, like I am, like I'm in Pennsylvania now. I would never do that and leave. I have to do that, prepare everything. So as soon as I came back, like on Monday, start it and watch it for like four or five days. Yeah. But it happens so quick. By day one, two, they're doing something you know fascinating, and. You know, I've got all these strains that I've screened for different bacteria and different fungi. And what's exciting, I, I love bacteria. I think that, uh, you know, working with drug-resistant strains is a, it's a huge future for us. And 
But the fungi, too, are interesting. Um, Aspergillus and Candida, and there's a lot of, you know, uh, as humans, we're taking antifungal drugs. And they're really more damaging. And I, I tell people, I said, listen, you know, <laughs> are you worried about pesticides, uh, herbicides, or fungicides? And I think the stigma is uh, pesticides, as in uh, insecticides, yeah. being harmful. I said, well, hold on a minute. Fungicides are way more damaging. Aren't we more closely related, humans more closely related to fungi than we are, for example, to plants? Undisputable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, mushrooms and humans, we all create heat, carbon dioxide and sweat and well, not not 100 percent, but the majority, you know, we're all territorial. Yeah. We conquer things. We mine our resources. I could keep on going. Our our similarity with these organisms and the fact that we're using antifungal compounds for fungal infections isn't doing us a favor. I mean, they're really harmful to our our cell biology because our antifungals aren't that good. So I think it's a great thing. If it's not us, maybe it's another company, you know, that's watching what we're doing and in, in hopes of finding some things that are a lot more holistic and not so magical uh, golden BB because that's, that's what brings about those, those mutations and the promiscuity in bacteria so quickly. You know, we need to, we need to build multiple hurdles, like like what's being sweat out in these metabolites and these galleries. And you know, we're working on something that's just so cool. And the interns, I just talked to them today, and they're so excited. They're building these little things. I can't talk about, but why can't you talk? Because they're proprietary. Well, you know, they <laughs> the the design is. Oh, but okay. I can tell you that um, I could tell you how it works. Okay. Like, say you go into a hospital. And uh, you went swimming down in Tampa, uh, right on, on a beach, you know, right, right where the sewage comes out. And let's say that you cut yourself on a barnacle and get a flesh-eating bacteria. You know, that never happens. <laughs> so, so that patient goes to the hospital, and they've never seen this organism before. Um, they streak it, and it's resistant to everything. Only option is going to be amputation. Um, so the idea of what we have is taking an unknown organism, even if it's uh, uh, newly discovered, or you know, you're in a village in Africa and there's an outbreak. You can quickly, in pure culture, take this liquid or a swab or even a throat culture and take this and inject it into this specially designed container we made. Outcomes, and then the it sits on the fungus, and in these wells, outwells um, the metabolite in about 24 to 48 hours, which is specific to that patient, that ecotype, that bacteria that you put in there. Wow! So it, it bypasses a huge step, and that's kind of the vision I have in my head. And I've got people who are against it, and I got people who are for it. And I. Why would anyone be against it? Well, you know, there's folks that are in the medical community that says, well, this is dangerous, you know, it could harm healthy cells. And I said, I, I understand that. We're at the preliminary stages of our research. And that was an article in The Atlantic that came out. Oh, really? I actually appreciate the antagonism because I've had people tell me before 
that stuff won't work or don't even try, don't even bother. And that actually pushes me even harder. So <laughs> keep it up, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it up. Plus, it's always amusing to me when they say, oh, it'll damage the healthy cells. Well, that's what you do to cancer patients every day. Right. You know, it's just damage the shit out of their immune systems, their cells, their whole structure. And then, you know, surprise, six years later, it comes back as something else, you know, some other form of cancer. So it's it's not as if this isn't happening with pharmaceuticals and this sounds like a much more responsive way of of treating illness right and fungi are really good too i mean this is a direct treatment like a laser guided weapon um and but just taking mushrooms on a general daily basis eating is is part of your maintenance of, mm -hmm. um, and i think you remember i described the human body as like a coral reef it's very complex Mm -hmm. Why would we drop something in there that's like this huge shark that just eats everything? Yeah. You know, and or, or you know, just like napalm. We need we need more specifically self-tailored uh, metabolites and molecules, even specific to the person. And if it's something that I can deliver, that would be my dream come true. And that's how I want to be known. If we came up with this little thing that you could stick a a biopsy in and get a, a an antibiotic in 24 hours, and it's an ecotype that's different from every person that walks into the hospital. I mean, that's... That would be amazing. That's what keeps me up at night. <laughs> talk about some of your disaster relief efforts because I think um, disaster is the wave of the future. <laughs> it is. It will always be there. And uh, people are not really connecting the dots about all the disasters that we were setting ourselves up with, with climate change and everything like that. But you've really been in some hard hit places uh, like Haiti. And so in a place like Haiti, uh, after an earthquake, what can mushrooms do in those circumstances? Well, the, the first thing you think about when you see, what, what are the needs of the refugees and the victims? Clean yeah. water is probably the first. Oh my gosh, water and water is the, dirty water is the largest killer of children on the planet. Yeah. And it's when you look at the numbers, it, it'll make you choke up because it is right now. It's it's sick. From diarrhea, it, right? Mostly or diarrhea. Yeah, diarrhea is yeah. a big killer on the planet. And so you think about that and then you think, well what can what can we do to filter water? You know? And fungi can filter water if we if we can teach these villages the basic concepts of mushroom cultivation, even if they don't like to eat mushrooms, okay? Mushrooms are a bonus. Mm -hmm. Haiti is a mycophobic culture. It's going to be a challenge down there. Um, they weren't 100% receptive to eating these things, um, but I think that they will. You remember the duck egg, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and I think 
but these taste much better than duck eggs. Yeah, no uh, kidding. I had a few few native folks there try them, and they were shocked. They said these are amazing. They taste like chicken, and and so I think it's just about education. Uh, we need to get these what I call mushroom rescue modules out there that folks can copy. That's not anything that I want to commercialize unless it's a commercialization for uh, outreach and um, or to monetize. I want I want uh, people to learn this and to spread it and to spread the cultures and to get them into the right villages so they can clean water. Mm-hmm. And mushroom mycelium, when you from a biomass. For anyone listening, you know, mushrooms grow in this big block or cake. Um, you can take that big block or cake and just make a little indention in the top. And then it becomes, and you can pour contaminated water in there and it percolates very slowly through this cake, which is like a micron filter. Mm-hmm. And then the water is collected at the bottom and it's essentially, it's, it's free of um, biological contamination. Wow. As they peel it out. I yeah. mean, bacteria are one micron wide. And, you know, Vibrio cholera sticks to chitin, which I think is just so romantically beautiful and poetic that it'll do that all at once. Now, wait a minute. Let's track back a bit. It will stick to chitin. Now, that's in that's in the mushrooms? Uh, the, the cell walls are, have a chitinous component to them, some more than others, but they do have chitin in the cell wall. Oh, okay. So, um, as free-swimming cholera-inducing uh, bacteria, Vibrio cholera binds to chitin like a magnet so if you flow it through one of these filters they they typically bind to copepods um little free swimming crustaceans in the water oh uh uh-huh people are not drinking the vibrio they're drinking the copepod with the vibrio attached so they found ways to try to screen out water with um fabric you know like the saris that women wear Mm-hmm. And they're doing that in India, and it's shown to be helpful, but it's not 100%. So micron filters created by mycelium would be a surefire hit. And the mushrooms, the fruit being a bonus, you know, you've got oyster mushrooms have twice the amount of protein than chicken and eggs, calorie for calorie. Those same modules vector, they, they produce octanol, which is a fruity alcohol. Mm-hmm. And then if you situate these modules on the outskirts of the village, um, away from the huts, that octanol just kind of oozes out and creates a chemical stream, an invisible river of a mosquito attractant. And then the mosquitoes vector towards those bins where they, they can be trapped. That's amazing. You know, I'm wondering, I, was, I remember you talking about the Haitians being mycophobic, and I was thinking about that and wondering why. Um, did you ever hear them tell any stories about mushrooms or any kind of idea of why they're mycophobic? I don't. It's something I never never really addressed or, or dug into. You know, I, I'd be fascinated to, uh, to ask, but I never... I never anybody nothing huh because this is what I was thinking you figure okay Haitians came from Africa and they had a very extreme form of slavery there at the hands of the French uh, I've seen these pictures of like face masks metal face masks so they wouldn't eat sugar cane or something it's just horrible and um, you figure Africans would have certainly been aware of mushrooms in their own territories 
The French are certainly aware of mushrooms and eat them a lot. And I wonder if it were some kind of power thing that if the people were able to feed themselves, they they wouldn't be malleable. I don't know, but it just seems so weird that that they would be so mycophobic. Yeah, I think I'm on your team there because there there were mushrooms in Africa, like Termitomyces and um, even in um, Pleurotus tuber regium, which is a king tuber mushroom that grows in Nigeria. That you know, and a lot of these slaves were brought from tropical areas. Right. What happened? You yeah. Know? So, um, and, and maybe that knowledge is passed down. And and look at look even America is kind of a mycophobic culture that's recovering. Yeah. Compared relative to Eastern Europe, mushroom uh, Americans don't know anything about hunting mushrooms in the woods and what's edible, but it is growing. Of course, your wife Olga is from Croatia, right? Oh yes. And so she's she's down with the mushrooms. Mine, <laughs> um, and even Heidi now, which is our two and a half year old, uh, is can spot and recognize chanterelles and morels, and with a knife cuts them out of the ground and will not let us pick any of them. Wow. I think that at a very young age, uh, it seemed to me in the village of Haiti and Conj that the younger kids who I was teaching one night, um, how to grow mushrooms on paper and cardboard were fascinated by it. So it may be the older culture. Maybe there needs to be a mushroom revolution there, you know, and I'm, I'm willing to bring it. Yeah. And you were, you were teaching them how to grow food, on just trash that they found in ditches, right? Right, yeah, and I'm, I'm uh, unsure how this story ends. You know, uh, the Clemson University, which was there, had to pull out of that village to a little bit of political unrest. And, and you see, that's, that's what happens down there. There's very little traction. Um, maybe they're doing it, maybe they're not. Um, and I would love to get, get back, either get back down there or get with a team of... Uh, you know, NGOs or someone, show them my plan, show them these modules and, you know, get someone to support this financially and train folks to get these things down there. So there's so much. Mm -hmm. One little project in one little village isn't going to work. If we hit like 20 or 30 in the same area where if someone's fails, another one works. So then we can take mycelium from that one and give it back to the person who, where it failed, you see? So there's more balance, right. but there's no balance down there. And, um, I'm, I mean, I'm committed for life to go fix that. You know, I, I, you, you, it should be mandatory to go down there for a week. I've it's, always thought I, that, uh, incoming freshmen, and there are actually some, some Quaker schools, mm -hmm. Quaker colleges where you have to go down to Haiti I mean, who knows? Maybe those overprivileged college kids are a, a, a pain in the butt once they get down there. But um, you have to go down and see how poor people live. Uh, I think that's an incredible eye-opener. Yeah, I, I think if you think your dorm is small, because <laughs> I'm in one right now. It's like a little prison cell. Um, that's probably the echo you hear. That. But when we moved in, when we were driving up the village into Kanj, I mean... I've lived in Syria. I've never seen living conditions like I saw in Haiti. Wow. I've never seen it. That's, it's, and you, you see homeless people in the United States. They, live, they have tents and cardboard and stuff like that. It's the same thing, mm. except these, this is a hot, hot tropical climate, and there's a little mud 
hut on the side of the road, I swear, built out of sticks and mud, lots of them that are barely enough to even like lay down in, you know, and that's the kind of effect. Yeah, yeah. You know, that I brought, came back with. You know, I've, I've seen uh, <laughs> some Damascus and Cairo and back in the early 80s. What were you doing in Syria? Um, my dad was in the Air Force. and oh, right. Uh, he, he managed to swap out a year in the United Nations. Someone wanted to come back home for a year, so he swapped out a year as a peacekeeper. Mm -hmm. And um, so we spent six months in Damascus and six months in Cairo. And for anyone who's not I'm watching the news about how, how bad it is in Syria, it's just, it's awful. And to think that in, in the early 80s, it was still dangerous when I was there. Yeah, right. I had a, uh, we had a car bomb go off on my block. And it blew in like the side of our uh, apartment where I was just sitting. So I'm very grateful to be here. And I would love to help with that, you know. And, and when, I, when I talk about these things, you know, maybe we can drop them behind these enemy lines. There's people starving, no water, no food for weeks. They're cut off. What if, what if something fell from the sky and you were that refugee mm -hmm. and it landed and there was pictures that told you how to fill it with garbage, uh, mix this culture in, you wet it, even if it's contaminated water and out comes food in like two weeks. Yeah. That's crazy. That's like, it is crazy. Science fiction to them, but it's not to us. You know, we gotta, I think it's time to do it. Yeah. When you figure that things are only going to get just crazier in terms of refugees, whether they are refugees due to political strife or ethnic strife or due to climate change. Yeah. And uh, to have that kind of rescue in a box where you can purify your water, grow food and, you know, improve your immune system. Sounds like something that is really desperately needed. Yeah, so um, I can I can do my best to improve these but you know the the best thing to do to anybody listening if you know anybody just slip them my card <laughs> slip them my email me and let's let's see if uh, we can get some rich donors to fund you know uh, fund some sites and villages in some of these hot spots and you know after the earthquake in Haiti nobody talks about that anymore there's still like a hundred hundred and fifty thousand people still in tents right outside the airport we just kind of moved on to the next story. And so, and even larger, some in Africa, Nigeria, there's so many that are fleeing their countries. And uh, if we can at least get something, UN, WHO, uh, any, anything to support like this, this process, this system, and say, hey, let's try it, let's prototype it, um, let's get it to these villages and and make, make it work. And I just want to say to people listening that there will be contact information in the show notes where you can find out more. This would really mitigate a lot of misery for people who are just on the edge. Maybe it's time to get everybody together and talk and say, listen, let's, let's look at this idea and let's uh, fix this because what, what a lot of Americans and Europeans and any any culture listening that has food and has clean water, okay, in any country may not know. If you're not a microbiologist, the fact is 
that are pandemic diseases that everybody's scared the, scared the hell out of are coming from these hot spots. And we need to fix and heal the people that, that our governments consider um, economically unimportant. And those are the corporations. And so that's what I do what I do. I, hey, I got a mushroom farm. I got a lab. Do I have to make money? Of course I do. But the more I make, the more I can do. And when people come on a tour, I mean, I still do tours for $15 a piece. You know, I'm like, and I tell everybody after the tour, I said, I thank you so much because every dollar that you, you know, goes into this amazing stuff that we're trying to do. So I really appreciate your, you know, appreciate your support. People are just like their jaws on the ground. They're like, oh my God. Well, the, to hear you talk about it and, you know, in our, in our course, and I just have to say, if, if anybody out there has a chance to take a class with Trad, do it, because not only is it incredibly informative, you'll get comfortable with the idea of mushrooms, but he's also hilarious. But really, it's, it, it was so uh, energizing, you know, just the, the spirit that you brought to it. But it seems like humans have created so many problems by virtue of, I mean, just anything, overpopulating, using the wrong kinds of chemicals on stuff, you name it. And it seems like mushrooms are almost a guide for us to get back to something that is holistic and that works. Right. And, and there's so many different species and there it's an untested area and we're finding that you know there was a huge gap in fungal research from penicillin up until the 1970s i mean nobody studied fungi for 50 years it's amazing we made a major discovery and they never looked at anything else that seems to me strange and um, i think now is our time you know it's it's time to uh, push the paradigm and go ahead and make it happen I don't want to be known as someone who makes things that people want, you know, and Olga too, us as a company. I want to be known as a company that makes things that people need. About Santa Claus, mm -hmm. Santa and his reindeer, and mushrooms. Oh, that wasn't in the first interview. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. You were telling me about people drinking reindeer urine to help them resist pain. <laughs> you did. You did. You opened the door, man. We're walking through it. Okay. Well, it's a good story, um, and it's true. So there are still cultures today that hunt uh, Amanita muscaria, which is the, the uh, stereotypical Alice in Wonderland mushroom, red cap, you know, white little dots, which you would call little remnants of the veil, all over the cap. And they are active in the sense that when they're slightly toxic when you, uh, when you ingest them, but if you dry them properly, 
like they do in Kamchatka, which is uh, Siberia. They still do this with their with their reindeer. They'll feed them to their reindeer. They'll sun dry them and feed them to their reindeer. And then the reindeer, it helps them with stamina and uh, helps them push through the snow, through the blizzards. And then the uh, natives would collect the urine or eat the, you know, eat the yellow snow. They always say don't eat yet the yellow snow, right? Wasn't that Frank Zappa? I think so. That's a good tip. <laughs> uh, don't eat the yellow snow. But they were eating the yellow snow and finding that it was active and um, I wouldn't call it hallucinogenic, but it would be a little bit mind-altering. And it, those were compounds that would also induce visions of um, and superstitions. So uh, the Vikings took part in these rituals, too, before they went to war. Uh-huh. And it's suspected that, you know, they were eating Amanita muscaria and drinking each other's urine for up to like 10 or 20 passes. It was still active. Wow. What a fraternity, huh? It may have evolved where the colors and the superstition and the, the evolution and the root of the, the Santa Claus uh, mythology came from uh, these Eskimos used to climb up over these huts and down the center of their homemade yurts, you know, which was, would be like the equivalent of our chimney uh-huh. where the smoke was coming out and bring gifts and things like that the clothing that the shaman would wear would be remnants of red and white fur, you know, white fur symbolizing that, that connection with the Amanita muscaria. Cool. So you got reindeer, you have red and white suits, (laughs) you know, and (laughs) you have gifts, except, you know, these days, uh, we don't drink urine at Yuletide. (laughs) I don't know if I would uh, go that way. (laughs) So, you also mentioned that some people are treating PTSD with hallucinogenic mushrooms. Is that... So, there's a lot of... um, There's the MAP studies, M-A-P-S. What is that? Um, That is the... I I can't remember the acronym, but if you look up, it's for the... I think it's the Medical Application for Psychedelic Science. Oh, okay. It's something like that. Um, But MAPS is um, a great organization. They, uh, they have folks from John Hopkins University and different independent psychotherapists and folks who are permitted to administer psilocybin and, um, and some other psychoactive drugs to patients for clinical studies. And they're finding that, well, John Hopkins started with stage four cancer patients and I think that's Roland Griffiths. I think that's the uh, doctor. But you can check out his YouTube videos. Really good. He is the lead researcher at John Hopkins. And he found that these uh, mushrooms with one dose were inducing profound spiritual events within a person that they would live longer. They would, uh, a, 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 a patient who has been told, and I know you know this, that we tell patients when they're going to die. I know. What is that? <laughs> I don't get it. Well, it's called playing God. Yeah, it's like milk. We have like an expiration date, and we don't know, you know. So hey, you you well, you have about two months to live. But in all fairness, a lot of people ask. Yeah. I, I think statistically, they could tell them if you ask. But why don't we just not? Tell, I mean, just really say 
Uh, well, that's up to you. <laughs> I don't think most patients act, uh, react positively to this, but under the effects of psilocybin, they did because they, they changed. And I think what the psilocybin studies show that they were able to get in there and self-reflect really inner deep self-reflection to the point where they hit like a reset button and oh. they can, uh, talk to family again where they might have been pushing family away, you know, and locking themselves in and feeling or expressing pity and from, from this kind of this spiritual experience that they encountered, uh, they lived much, much longer and, and some even experienced, you know, remission and it's, it's exciting to see that. Very exciting. It's, it's, it's a whole new dimension that people don't think about in terms of their health. Yep, and the reset button also, they're, they're getting into uh, addictive behaviors, which would be substance abuse, um, but there's also behavioral, meaning victimized uh, patients like rape victims or PTSD, mm -hmm. um, where it's doing wonders. Wow. And I think that we're just a society that takes pharmaceuticals to numb our senses to <laughs> where we don't listen to ourselves. And, and I think mushrooms pretty much make you listen to yourself. <laughs> so um, that's what they have going for them. Uh, John Hopkins is uh, expanding their studies, which is, uh, I think is exciting. We've been supportive and maybe even in a conversation where they're going to expand into not just purified psilocybin, but from what I've heard, they may, they may be interested in doing whole mushroom studies, meaning not just the purified molecule. Wow. You know, the pharmaceutical rate, they're, they're looking at the whole fungus itself. So uh, I've kind of got my ear to the ground and my, my, uh, my hand in the air. Great. That's great. So, thanks. Since soil is another disaster area where we're uh, depleting soil to the extent that it's hard to grow nutritious food, and mushrooms play a, a strong role in this as well, right? Oh yeah, and mushrooms are capable of, you know, creating soil very quickly. And I live in the upstate South Carolina, and topsoil here was 12 to 15 feet deep in the early 1900s. And they went back and did the study two years ago, and it was five to eight inches. And when, um, so this is a serious thing. Yeah, no a society really needs to uh, build soil and understand how fungi can be used to recycle nutrients, uh, carbon back into the environment. You know, we're pulling a lot of carbon out and we're not right. back. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm here at a native plant conference, so I'm driving around town in Lancaster, Pennsylvania today, and I see people raking their leaves just so we can see their beautiful green grass. Oh God! And so I, I see all the bags lined up on the curb, and I'm like, okay, there's a reason they're called leaves. Those trees need those leaves. They put them there. They drop them. They have fungi on them. You know, fungi are endophytic. They live in the leaves, and then they drop. We keep raking up the soil that their acorns are falling into, or their seeds, and and that's what they want. So I, I don't think that we're being very nice to the the trees. starting to see. Do you remember when you said that? Mm -hmm. 
Well, um, I'm starting to see more. The clubs are getting bigger. Um, the conferences are talking about fungi, you know, the big ones. Obviously, I'm traveling around a little bit way too much. Um, and the information is building. I could feel I could feel the snowball coming down and it's getting layers and there's more people too, you know. Um, when I speak and other other mushroom scientists speak, they've got this uh, well, they're like groupies and they we all kind of accrue and we pick up more people and we say, you know, you know, this is what fungi can do. And then they tell someone else. So it's somewhat viral, you know, and that's a great thing. And I think for anyone listening who can educate yourself a little bit, go to a workshop, Hey, come see me or get know, the book, get no, Chad's book, get the book, <laughs> please. No, I, it helps. Uh, it helps to speak the language. And if we're all not looking at the same Rosetta Stone, we're not going to be able to talk, you know. And uh, fortunately that this information is here. We get the basic language and understanding. Join a mushroom group. Join a mo mushroom club. I know everyone who's, if you're listening in North America and you're paying 20 to $30 for a pound of chanterelles, that a club membership is $20 a year, you know, and you can go out and pick tons of them. But I think once you get into the woods with a mushroom person and you're walking around, something changes. And Olga and I have been getting a lot of really heartfelt emails from folks who said, this has really changed my life. I really, I get out into the woods. I don't think about work. I, I get to hunt mushrooms. I'm learning so much about them, about what they do. And, and they tell other people. And mm -hmm. it's one of those things that I think if we all kind of start out in these little nexus points everywhere that we can kind of radiate outward and then meet in the middle. That's, that's what I want. Thanks, Trad, for talking with me today and for all the work you're doing. It's just so exciting. And I really recommend to people who are interested in mushrooms to get Trad's book, Organic Mushroom Farming and Mycoremediation. Go to some of Trad's classes if you if you see he's coming to a place near you and uh, learn more about mushrooms because they're happening. I think they're the keys to a healthier future for in, in a lot of ways. Well, let me thank the, the listeners for, you know, considering some of these ideas and, and be proactive about it. Go out and find us. And it's like an ember. You have to start it. You have to light it and then it'll get bigger. And I know it'll make a lot of positive change in your life and those around you. So have fun with it. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Cheers. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to leave a comment or get in touch with Trad Cotter or buy his book, go to www.meetyourmyth.com and click on the Big Chew podcast. You can also subscribe to the Big Chew podcast on iTunes. I recommend it. I also recommend you get to know some mushrooms. Thanks. Bye.